tonight, how what you think about the economy ends up affecting the economy, the markets, and much more. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Brian James, who's in for Steve tonight. Gosh, Brian, everywhere you look, headlines about a recession, uh, you know, the sky is falling, this is the worst we've ever seen, this time is different. And I think for many of us, after you read that so many times, especially if you're not looking at the actual data, it changes how you actually feel, right, about investing, about uh, what you're putting into your 401k, about how you're spending your money. Yep, this is sentiment of a of of the same type that we always see, right? So we what we deal with at All Worth when we're talking to our clients and about their financial plans and about the markets, so on and so forth, is investor sentiment, which is not far from consumer sentiment. Everybody's grumpy right now. This is just not a fun That's time. That's a good way of putting person. it. <laughs> not a <laughs> it's fun not a good time, time to, to fill up your gas bills. tank. It's not a good time to uh, look at your grocery bill. It's not a good time to check your four hundred one k. So yeah, you're right. We're all grumpy. So what should I be doing? If it's not a good time to check my 401k and I don't want to fill up my gas tank, maybe I should just sit at home with the with the lights off under the blankets. And sometimes that's not the worst. Uh, that's not the worst choice. But uh, but not today. You got to go to work. and We got to get back to focusing on goals and all that other stuff. So well, the reason we're bringing this up is there there is a survey out there uh, that that re- that reviews consumer sentiment, and this is tracked by the University of Michigan something they've had in place uh, for decades. And the reason it's important is because consumer spending makes up about 70% of the gross domestic product, which is basically just the output of all the goods and services this country produces. And uh, the sentiment we look at is uh, basically to to measure that. So if, if consumer spending is 70% of our economic output, then when people are grumpy, that's going to leave a mark and we're eventually going to see it come through uh, within lots of uh, lots of indicators. So uh, we, we want to uh, avoid recessions, of course, but we know that that's always on the table. We never know when that's going to happen. Uh, and consumer sentiment can be sometimes an indicator of, a, of an impending uh, downturn in the markets. You know, we often talk, Brian, about the, main, the difference between Main Street and Wall Street. And often we talk about how Wall Street affects Main Street, but we, we don't think about the reverse, how Main Street affects Wall Street. And, and that's really what's going on here, because if you feel a certain way about spending or about where you think inflation is going to go in the future or about losing your job or the fear of maybe being laid off, you change your spending habits accordingly. And when you do that and your neighbors do that and your family does that and your friends do that, it has a profound and deep impact on the economy itself, right? When we talk about inflation, if you are actually worried about inflation going up in the future, maybe you start to buy things now because you're worried that the price is going to go up in the future. What is that going to do? Well, that fuels the flames of inflation, right? If you are worried about a recession, you're worried about losing your job, all of a sudden you stop spending, you start saving more, uh, and then that absolutely slows down the economy and it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's interesting because I think that, you know, when we talk about these statistics, we often don't see ourselves in the statistics, but we are very much a part of these. Very much so. And self-fulfilling prophecy is the, that is the best term for this. And if, if that's a term that's always kind of confused uh, the, those of uh, some of you out there, then well, let's kind of define that. What that means is if I believe something's going to happen long enough, eventually it will, right? So if I'm worried that the economy is going to slow down and that there's economic risk out there, then I might myself start to live differently and change my habits. Uh, and I start spending a little less. And then all of a sudden I, I, I complain to my neighbor over the back fence and then they're doing it too. And my family. And then all of a sudden what we were, what we were worried about, we have actually effected to come true. So 
Yeah, and that that's really the risk, right? So we want to make sure that we, we don't like these things. We can't have them happen, uh, but they will. And that's one of the few guarantees. And again, consumer sentiment is one of the things we look at to indicate, you know, how are, how are we looking, as Marty Brenneman used to say. So uh, where are we right now with consumer sentiment? Well, at this point, if you go all the way back to uh, 1980, you'll see a, a spot that's roughly where we are. So in other words, about half the people out there taking this survey feel like things are not great. We have, we have had eight troughs meaning kind of the bottom of the markets, uh, uh, the, not the markets, but uh, the bottom of the of the sentiment uh, readings there. Uh, and right now with where we are, we have to go back to May of 1980. Now, one of the things to bear in mind is one of the uh, one of the old sayings that people hate the most in investments, which is it's always darkest just before the dawn. So think of mm -hmm. it this way. If everybody's negative, then we're running out of people who will become negative. And we're getting to the point where we're where it kind of has to flatten out at some point. So uh, at this point, there's almost nowhere to go but up. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we make sense of how you're feeling right now and how that affects the overall broader economy, how that affects the markets. You know, we're talking about these troughs and these peaks, but it's essentially, if you want to boil it down, it's kind of do most of Americans feel like the glass is half full or do we feel like the glass is half empty? And we've sort of shifted to this place where, ah, glass is empty, right? Things aren't looking good. Many of us feel that way. And as the result of that, and we, and I think one of the great things about this show is we are so dedicated to providing perspective because, man, there's a lot of headlines out there that will tell you it is a dark day and there are many, many, many dark days ahead. We don't know that, but we do like to put the lens of history and perspective on top of what's going on now to show you maybe what we think could happen. You know, Brian, you mentioned these sentiment troughs, right? Essentially just these big dips of, of feeling good about the economy. We're in one right now, but since 1970, there have been eight of those and also eight sentiment peaks. So right now we are in the sort of ninth time that we have seen a major dip here. All right. Well, when we get to the peaks, the average return that we've seen historically, 4%. Well, you're already feeling good about things. The market continues to grow a little bit. But here's the stat I think that we should be focusing on right now. During these troughs, during these times when all of us as Americans are just bummed out about the economy, the average return on the S&P 500 following those times has been a gain of 25%. Right. Now, the important thing to, to note about this is, first of all, that that's what we were just talking about, right? It's always darkest just before the dawn. Yeah. So when we hit these bottoms, and it also it also works at the peak, too, like you just said. When, when we hit the peak on consumer sentiment and we all feel invincible, which was as recently as, uh, you know, as, as the end of last year, uh, then the market has already had a run. Everybody's feeling confident. We're spending, 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 and living life like there's like there's like there's lots of tomorrows. And here's and here's how we know when we get there, Brian. And I wonder if you've had this um, with any of the investors that you work with. When we start to get eighty and ninety year olds call us and say, "Hey, my emergency fund. Uh, I'm just going to put that in the stock market. You know, like any money that I have on the sidelines, any money I have in bond. Let's just go all in on the stock market because I can't lose." When we start to feel that way right in retirement then you start to know okay we're we're maybe heading toward another lull now exactly when people decide that risk isn't a thing anymore not yes. that it's low risk that there's just no risk and there never will invincible. be invincible that is usually a sign of uh, of a coming some coming turbulence and that's kind of where we are right now so but yeah and and if you think about it the, it, it makes sense that the average return as you said let's reiterate that the average return of the S&P 500 
uh, after these consumer sentiment troughs has been a gain of 25%. That's a big gain. Now, remember, these consumer sentiment troughs, troughs as, we, as we discussed, con, uh, consumer spending is 70% of the GDP. So whenever people get grumpy, uh, then we are going to uh, we're going to see the market come down as well. And uh, so it's not too shocking to say that the market usually comes way back up after it goes way down. Well, that goes in line with sentiment, too. And what we know about all of the scariest years, think of 2002 and 2008, 1974, 1937 have been some of the scariest years in the markets. Those were immediately followed by some of the best years. The further you pull a rubber band down, the further back it's going to snap in the other direction. And we see mm -hmm. the same thing with sentiment. And I think, you know, a greater kind of bigger point that you could make here is I'm hearing from some people right now who are saying, like, I, I think I just need to get out. I'm, I'm going to get out and then I'm going to get back in when when the dust is settled. OK, well, how do you know when the dust is settled and, and, and how do you know, right, when the low is and when, when the high is coming? Uh, you know, and I think that's where we would say, hey, you have a plan in place. Hopefully you have a plan in place. And now is the time to stick with it. We talk about kind of building a boat, like building your financial plan. You don't build a boat in the middle of a storm. You build a boat when the when the seas are calm. Well, you don't start making decisions about how you're going to change how you spend and how you invest. Not during the storm. You've got a plan for those things that you make during times of calm. Yeah, one, one of the interesting conclusions I'm hearing, and, and it's, I've seen this before, I've been doing this for 25 years, so this is the cycle. People eventually get to a point where they've just had enough of the chaos, the scary headlines and the terrible financial statements and all of that. And they'll, they'll eventually get to a point where they'll say, you know what, I just need a break. I want a break, so I'm going to sell everything out, and then we'll, we'll check it once a month. I'm going to check once a month, and I'll see if I want to get back in. Mm. And my first point on that is, okay, what are you going to look at? There's no indicator out. There's no blinking green light. And second of all, if you're relying on your own gut, which you are, then you're already 0 for 1 because you have missed the downturn. If, if you really have this magic gut that's going to tell you what to do, well, then it is 0 for 1 because we're down 20, 20 whatever percent. And you didn't notice that until we're, uh, we're, we're down that far. So what, who's to say that your gut's going to tell you to get back in at the right time? Brian, look no further than February and March of 2020. We're just heading into a pandemic, right? I mean, every headline out there was bad to worse to catastrophic, right? Yet in the markets, we're in a free fall, yet one day in March, still at the very beginning of the economy absolutely shutting down, we hit peak, we hit the bottom, and then we started climbing from there. Would you or I or anyone out there said, this is the day, you know, this is the day that we reached the bottom and we're only going to go up from here for the next year and a half. No, no one would have thought that during that time because everything around us was pointing to things going from bad to much worse. Yet the markets were rebounding. Nobody would have called that. That's always the way it works, right? So it ne we, we never get a turnaround uh, that happens alongside the headlines. So if you're looking to wake up and check your phone for the latest headlines and have somebody with uh, post you a smiley face emoji and tell you everything's great, life doesn't work that way. March 9th of 2009 was the, the absolute bottom of the 2008 crash. But if you go Google headlines from that date, you won't see a single one that makes you feel any better. Yep. It was months, if not years after that we were able to clearly say that was the bottom. Here's the Simply Money point. Consumer sentiment, right? How you are feeling about the economy is an important indicator of where the economy actually may be headed. The S&P 500 eventually rises to the occasion every single time. Coming up next, Amazon Prime Day. Is it worth your time? And should you go after dividend stocks right now? Buyer beware. We'll explain. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station.
You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Brian James. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast. It's called The Best of Simply Money. You can find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 6.43, the times when you need to review your financial plan. We'll tell you when those are. Brian, are you a huge Amazon Prime person? Oh, yeah. Amazon Prime. I'm a big fan. Uh, I love free shipping, and I love the fact that I can order something in the morning, and it's there by lunchtime. It's so crazy when I think about what it used to be like versus what my kids are used to in this world. I mean, Amazon Prime has changed everything, including uh, the times of the year when you shop, right? It used to be, the, of course, the big days of the year were leading up to the holiday season. Amazon Prime, though, said we're going to mix it up a little bit a few years ago, and they threw this big holiday in the middle of July and said we're going to throw all these deals your way. And I think the interesting, and, I, and for a couple of years, I'm going to admit, I went down the rabbit hole, Brian. Every couple of hours, I would get on Amazon Prime. What's on sale? What do I need to look at? What other retailers, though, especially the big ones, have realized is it doesn't have to be just Amazon offering these deals. So you've got Walmart, you've got Target, you've got Best Buy, you've got others sort of jumping in. So if you are a big prime person and you are looking at shopping right now, your best bet may actually not be Amazon. The best bet might be to shop around. Yeah, this is turning into Black Friday in July every year. Yes, no kidding. Monkey see, monkey do. If Amazon's going to have a deal, then you can rely on on the others too, because they're they're all basically in the same space now, right? Everybody, all these, all the major retailers now have an online presence too, so there can be great opportunities there. If you're looking, first off, let, let's let's call this what it is. Don't rush out and buy things you didn't need just because it's a, a great deal. But if you are in the market for 100%. a TV or whatever, this can be a good place. Just don't assume because it's Prime Day that's only that's the only deal. Check uh, check all those other sites too. Walmart, Target, and Best Buy they tend to be in line with each other. Keep in mind, too, what Amazon tends to do, especially in these sort of big blockbuster sales that they do, the deals happen to be on Amazon products, right? Their TVs, their Fire Sticks, the Alexa, the latest Echo, those kinds of things. If that's what you need, then yeah, you probably will find a, a better than average deal. I love, though, the one-upping that's going on right now. So you've got, you know, Amazon's, I think, 48 hours a day and a half. Now Target has 72-hour deal days. Uh, so not only do they have that, but they say we will price match any of the Prime Day deals. And if you're one of our red card members, so their credit card members are also going to take additional 5% off of that. I think the key here, you know, especially right now with everything being more expensive, if there is something you need, go to Amazon first, fine, but also shop around and see wherever you can get better deals. I actually, um, you know, initially kind of fell into that Amazon trap. Now I shop around during the holidays and I usually find better deals somewhere else. So, you know, if, if, if that's something you need to be doing, shop around. In times of volatility, uh, maybe like we're in right now, right? High inflation, um, people wondering, where can I turn? Where is a hedge? Where is a place that I can invest safely? And sometimes, Brian, dividend stocks come up during those conversations because this is a way that you can invest as an investor and get a portion of the money coming into that company back in your pocket. Yeah, so so let's talk about what a dividend is. Dividends is not something we have talked about, uh, you know, very much over the last couple of decades. But there's there's a, a a lot of ways that a stock can make money, right? We we normally everybody's comfortable with the idea that I want to buy it at a low price and sell it at a high price. So obviously that can go the other direction too. But price appreciation is only one way that we can make money from companies. Another way is a dividend, which is simply a cut of the action. So a dividend basically means that uh, your company is profitable. That's a pretty important uh, key there. Um, but 
uh, what they'll say is uh, we're going to give you X percent or, or, or X number of cents per share for how many shares you own. It's basically just literally a piece of the action. There's a difference in a lot of times you, you'll hear references to growth stocks versus value stocks. Basically, uh, the, 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 div the difference is, frankly, dividends uh, most frequently, where a growth stock, if a growth stock has extra surplus income, then uh, if I'm an owner of that, I don't want that cash. I want them to, to reinvest it and go, go invent more iPhones or go invent, you know, whatever, whatever product uh, that, that, they, that has gotten them to that place. Just keep doing more of it. Versus if it's an established company that really can't tell a sexy growth story with new products and all those kinds of things and think, you know, the biggest of the big, oldest of the old, IBM, Procter & Gamble, those tend to be value stocks. They can't tell that cool growth story. Not that there isn't growth, but uh, it's, it's more attractive because of the stream of income it can provide. I can get a relatively uh, stable stream of income. It's not guaranteed by any means, but there's a lot of companies out there that have a stable ongoing long-term story of being able to pay a dividend at a, and it'll be in the range of one to three percent of the value of your investment the stocks themselves go up and down like everything else uh, but it is a good way to to recognize the value of a company so uh and there's the, the there's a lot of different ways that uh, these are these are good. I mean, there's it's it's nice to know to own a company that's you know your your grandmother would have been proud to work for because these are these do tend to be the biggest of the big and the oldest of the old. And we've got a pretty good one here in town of Procter and Gamble. Well, and I think there's a lot of investors who just love kind of the feeling of the safety of those dividends coming in, especially I think retirees, right? It just it feel knowing that that income is going to come in, but I think it's easy also to fall into this trap where you expect that those dividends will be coming and you expect them to grow every year, uh, or not every year, but you expect some growth there, you know, a little bit more. Well, you mentioned hometown, but we look no further than General Electric, right? A couple of years ago, completely reversed course. That was a dividend paying stock that for years and years and years faithfully paid out uh, to investors. And then all of a sudden, hey, guys, we're pulling that back. Those dividends are going down to what was I think it was a penny, actually. Yeah. And in that case, they were simply paying because they had to pay something. They had to be able to continue to say we are a dividend paying company. So that brings up a that brings up a great question. Uh, a lot of times people will say, especially when we, we have a, a shift in, uh, in in investor thinking now. Right. We didn't care about dividends. We didn't care about income. We cared about growth. So now some people are getting turned on to income streams for the very first time. And they're seeing, hey, a dividend is a thing that pays a percentage of the value. Therefore, I just want to own the highest percentage dividend paying stock. That's not a great idea because a lot of times companies will simply window dress, make themselves attractive by paying a really, really high dividend as a percentage of their share price. Well, if they're a company that has to attract you to buy their stock that way, then it may not be that stable of a business to begin with. And you're going to want to look underneath to see, is this a company that's going to exist in three, four, five years or whatever my time frame is for this investment? Yeah, I think looking under the hood, right, understanding, yes, it's completely understandable right now with all of this market volatility to say, okay, where can I know that I'm going to have a stream of income coming in, right? What, what can I count on at the same time? Those companies that, yeah, maybe you can count on for those dividends, but where is that actual stock going? Where is that company going in the future? And just a reminder, above all else, we are huge proponents of being diversified, right? I mean, if you're going all in on an individual stock that pays dividends, that could absolutely blow up in your face. So if you're interested in dividend stocks, we would say, again, the reminder of our sort of golden rule for investing, which is no more than 10% of your entire portfolio ever in individual stocks. Here's a Simply Money point. Dividend stocks, they can be a powerful investing tool as part of that diversified portfolio. Just make sure you aren't buying them solely for that quarterly payout. Coming up, 
Who is tracking your kids? Our cybersecurity expert in next with the latest information parents you need to know. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. When it comes to technology, um, there's there's nothing I think that's more important than your children and protecting them from it, right? There's ways that technology can work to help you keep them safe and ways that you need to understand you need to protect them. Joining us tonight is our tech expert, Dave Hatter from Intrust IT. Dave, I want to start with the ways that parents can use technology, uh, to, to, first of all, to know where your kids are, which... I'm just going to be fully open here. I obsessively check this to figure out I've got a 16-year-old. I've got a 12-year-old. I want to know exactly where they are at all times. So I, I constantly use the app through uh, through my iPhone to know where they are. I don't ever even think, though, that, that other companies have access to that information about my kids. Well, as always, thanks for having me, Amy. And yeah, I think you raise an important point that many folks probably don't think about in a general sense or maybe even more explicitly when they think about how they might be tracking their kids with all this great technology. You know, we're surrounded by technology everywhere today. Everything is a computer now, right? These so-called smart devices or internet of things, or as I like to call them, internet of insecure things devices, Mm -hmm. your car, your phone, your refrigerator, everything is smart, quote unquote. And, you know, as a result of all of these sensors and all this technology, it's never been easier um, to track someone that obviously cuts both ways. You know, you may have seen, there's been some recent headlines about how AirTags, uh, which for folks who may not realize are, you know, little tags you buy from Apple to put on something so that you can track it. So you don't, if you're like me, you lose your keys all the time or something, sure. right? Sure, yeah. Um, but how those things are being used to stalk people. There's even been a murder involved with one of these AirTags. Oh my gosh. So, you know, all of this technology cuts both ways. And to get back to your original point about the kids, you know, whether it's the Find My Friends app that's built into the iOS phones, which has been around for a long time. And yes, my wife was insistent that all of my kids when they were younger uh, turned this on so she could track them. Uh, so totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and it's a great um, feature for a parent, right? I mean, I love that. And I and I always joke with my kids, the double-edged sword, the things that I got away with when I was a teenager, <laughs> right? Yes, I am staying at Nicole's house. Um, you know, I will know exactly where my kids are. Um, but at the same time, I'm never thinking about the fact that other people know exactly where my kids are. Well, and Amy, there are plenty of examples out there. You don't have to look too hard to find real-world examples where people, you know, were their lives saved? I don't know. They were certainly pulled out of... Uh, peril and jeopardy yeah. when they had a car wreck or something and like the find my friends app was used to find them or you know even think about something like onstar um the gm onstar which yep. has been around for us so you don't you don't have to look real hard to find examples where these things have saved lives um but the flip side of it is is yeah if in you know there are third-party apps life 360 is a well-known one there are others so you know maybe if you have an android phone or you just want to use something that perhaps has more features and more capabilities um, to to track different things and capture more information, you know, there are plenty of options out there. Life 360, as I mentioned, has been around for a while. Uh, it's one of the more popular parental surveillance apps like this, um, and it's and are they selling information? Are they tracking? Like, are are some of them better than others? Well, that is the right question to ask. Uh, I think, you know, some of these things will let you do things like, I don't know if you ever heard of the category of software called bossware. This is kind of similar, a similar situation where 
an employer would install it on your computer or your phone. And, you know, it can do things like enable the microphone, turn on the video camera, take screenshots of everything you're doing. Um, So, you know, this software has a wide variety of capabilities, perhaps can read their text messages and stuff like that. Again, it just kind of depends on what you buy. But yeah, to get to your specific question, many of these applications are selling your information. So Mm -hmm. Life360, again, it's got a pretty big user base. 32 million people in 140 countries. Um, It's currently the seventh most downloaded social networking app on the Apple App Store. Um, So we're talking about, you know, a considerable user base at this point. Um, It's making an enormous amount of money, or I guess rather they are making an enormous amount of money selling the information that this app collects. So, you know, I would remind folks, first off, if you're not paying in money, you're paying in data, you are the product, not the customer. But even if you are paying, I can almost guarantee you, if you read into the terms of service, they're collecting all kinds of data. I mean, the nature of a cell phone makes it possible to track you, right? They're collecting all this data. And in many cases, yes, they are selling it to other companies, which are those companies reputable? Are they protecting that data? Who are they selling it to? Who knows? You know, it's it's a major concern in my mind because that information could ultimately be used to impersonate your children or to fool your children, you know, some type of uh, extortion type attack where they get a text because they found the phone number somewhere mm-hmm. with all this other data. And then they use the information they've collected from these apps like, well, I know your mom's name. I know your school. I know you're this. I know you're that. When I send you a text, I put all that in there. So now you legitimately believe I have access to this sensitive data about you. And when I try to extort you, whether it's some kind of sextortion type thing or I'm just trying to get money out of you, having that information makes me seem a lot more legitimate and a lot more of a threat to you than if, on the other hand, I don't have all that. So, yeah, it's it's a legitimate concern in my mind. And as a general rule of thumb, the less information available out there about you is going to be better to help block those kind of attacks. You know, Dave, as I'm listening to you talk, and I think, gosh, you and I have talked hundreds of times, right, done so many of these interviews and conversations through the years. If I could sum them all up, it would be technology always provides some kind of convenience, but you have to know what you're trading for that convenience. And I think so many of us don't take that step to figure it out. In some cases, maybe you'll say, okay, this information's being shared, but the convenience I'm getting uh, is worth it. But if you don't know what you're trading, right, by by being able to track your children, uh, and that information could be getting out there to other people, if you don't understand that, uh, then you're stopping a couple steps short of making sure you understand exactly what's going on here. And and Dave, I want to switch gears quickly as we talk about our kids to the fact that, you know, when we talk about so many times, you know, keeping your information safe, it is because, of course, you don't want your identity to be hacked. And I think you think about that as an adult because you've got credit cards and you've got bank accounts. But really, the holy grail for hackers is your children. And I want to talk about that. Well, it really is on a couple of different levels. First off, Because if I can steal enough information about your kids, buy it, steal it, collect it somehow, it makes it really easy for me to then go do things like apply for credit in their name or apply for benefits in their name or something. And, you know, until they get old enough to care about their credit score or apply for a job where someone might check it or something, 
that kind of fraud can go unchecked for long periods of time. It could be years, right? You think yeah. about, okay, how often do you apply for a new loan or open a new credit card? You know, maybe it's a few months, six months, a year, but you're going to figure that out pretty quickly. Your kids, if they someone steals their information when they're two years old, their social security number and address and birth date of birth, uh, when they're 18, right, applying for college or trying to buy their first car, it could be that many years that that information is out there about yep. them. Think about and think the about think about how difficult that's going to be to unwind yes. after years and years and years of that sort of fraud of taking place today. But the second angle, right? So that's a major problem. It's a well-known mm -hmm. major problem, and kids are often targeted simply because it allows that sort of fraud to continue for extended periods of time. But the second piece, going back to all of this information collection we talk about all the time, and this myth that people have of well, I have nothing to hide. You know, I'm an open book. I'm a boring person. Yada 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 is all of this information that you are willingly giving up by using these apps and especially everything that's quote free unquote because that's how they make money okay there are companies out there right now I, I encourage your listeners to go see this for themselves look up data brokers and look up ai companies that are building new algorithms that are using all of this data and so for example you go to apply for a job well this employer happens to have purchased one of these tools that's going to use information that they can find about you to determine will you be a good employer or not you know, is everything that you're putting out on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and all these other things, uh, other information they're buying from who, what you've purchased on Amazon, what you've searched for on Google. Axiom, a large data broker, claims to have something like 5,000 data points on 100 million Americans. If I can dump your 5,000 data points into my AI algorithm that supposedly yeah. knows whether you're going to be a good employee or not, or would you be a good risk for auto insurance or home insurance or health insurance? There's all kinds of these systems being developed right now. You may not get the job because this AI tool decided based on all of your data that you've been throwing out there saying, well, I don't I have nothing to hide. This could never hurt me. I don't care about any of this. You might not get the job. You might not get the loan. You might not get the insurance or you might get a ridiculous premium because they're making determinations and decisions about you based on all of this information, which, of course, you probably haven't thought about in a long time and or you know, don't have any clue what's really out there and or have no way to look into these algorithms and challenge them like you could with a credit score or something. This is just happening silently in the background. You didn't and get you the never job. Know, you never know. Right. You yeah. never know. This is scary. Stuff. This is it's going on right now as we speak. You have to be aware um, all kinds of technology out there to help you protect your children at the same time. Know how that technology can be used against them and make sure you are doing everything you can to protect their identities. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner. Brian is in tonight for Steve. Straight ahead, if you have a loved one who's asking you to maybe take out a loan, why being the co-signer, not a good idea. We'll get into that. All right. You know, I think, Brian, we've got these financial plans and we always talk about how important they are. And I think it's great once you get one to feel like, oh, relief, done. You check the box on that list of things to do and you don't go back and revisit it. And we would say not this is a living, breathing document, something that actually you do need to go back and 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 check on. And there's certain times that we would say, hey, you definitely need to be looking back at that document right now. 
Yeah, so the, the first time to, the uh, first most important time to review it is the first time you make one. So let's start with what's important. You got to have a plan to review it. So real quick, let's just, just, just kind of go over uh, what is a financial plan? Well, that's basically sitting down and reviewing what are the resources that I have, right? I've got my 401k, I'll have social security, maybe there's a pension in the mix. What am I trying to do with it? That has to do with when I want to retire and what I'm going to need to spend to accomplish my goals, living expenses, paying off a mortgage, uh, covering health care, all those different kinds of things. That's basically laying that out over the rest of your life and taking into account inflation and changes in taxes and all those kinds of things. Once you've got that in place, when's the best time to review it? Well, first off is during a time where there is where, where things are doing okay right if you if you review your plan only when you're in some kind of financial panic as a lot of people may be doing right now then you are likely coming into a situation where you're going to convince yourself that the world is going to end no matter what you do and you're already kind of coming in with a negative point of view so that's not the best time to, to review it make sure you're looking at it just during normal times quiet time long three-day weekend or you're snowed in for the weekend or whatever that can be a great time to sit down and just kind of just do a quick check of of how things are looking. You know, I always um, so, think of a financial plan too, Brian, like like a roadmap, right? And, and once you know where it is and you know where you're going and your sort of goals are mapped out, you've got a plan. Then if you need to detour, at least you've got a starting space. At least you know where you are right now and where you hope to get. And if you have to detour a little bit, I think that makes it so much easier. I think about people who get these sort of um, buyouts, right, offered to them, or, uh, you know, maybe it isn't offered, but sort of shoved down your throat, you know, people who are put, you know, kind of forced into a corner, okay, what are my options now? Uh, you've got a starting place to say, okay, if I were to take this buyout, if I were to leave four years earlier than expected, how does that work, right? At, at least you kind of have a starting place. And I think that's incredibly important. And you never know what could happen. That's right. I mean, what you're talking about is uh, the kind of that first time that you'll be relieved that you have a financial plan. And that's when new information falls out of the sky into your lap. Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, maybe a layoff or maybe a, you know, a, a golden retirement package or whatever. Right. But all Good of a sudden, bad. exactly. Yeah. But, but at that point, you'll feel a lot better when you can go back and say, all right, here's the path that I was on. Here was my original plan. Now let's apply the new information and see, should I do this? Should, does this mean if I'm going to, if this is all going to happen, should I be continuing to fund my 401k or should I take those dollars and use them to pay down the mortgage in a more timely manner? What's the right answer? And so, yeah, so that second point, that second time is when there is new information and all of a sudden your goals may be changing, your priorities of them may need to uh, you think differently about. And wouldn't it be nice if when you were saving, you said, okay, I'm going to save for retirement first and here's how much and I'm done with that. And now I'm going to save for college for my kids. And here's, it doesn't work like that. Of course, we're saving for uh, maybe helping the kids with college. Maybe we're saving to help with a wedding. Maybe we're saving for retirement in vacation home, all of the things at the same time. How do you prioritize those things? How does that all work? Well, that's where the plan comes into place, right? You go back to that plan can we reach this goal? How can we do this? How can we rejigger this a little bit, right? I mean, it, it, again, it becomes your starting point. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and then also when you don't know where to go next, right? Maybe you're in a place where uh, things are changing. You're going through a major life change like a, a divorce or a loss of someone. Where do you go next? Well, this is where you start.
new information. That, that's a very important uh, the way to think about it. And your, your opinion, your situation may not have even changed. It could be just the way you think about things. Priorities change. And the example I'll give is you know, one of the big decisions everyone will face is when to file for Social Security. You know, you, you can't do it any earlier than 62. There's no benefit to waiting beyond 70, but that's still an eight-year time frame where you're going to have to make a decision. And what I will say, you know, a lot of people when they're young and healthy, they'll say, oh, I, I plan on working to 70 because I want to max out those 8% increases every year that I don't file it, I get 8%. But then I will say there are a lot more 55-year-olds who talk about that than 65-year-olds, right? Eventually, it gets hard to get your feet on the floor in the morning, and you might start thinking differently. In other words, nothing has really changed except your attitude. Your thoughts on money, your thoughts on what you want out of your life will change, and that is a great time to review a plan that's already in place. Here's a Simply Money point. Your financial plan, it is your roadmap. Don't forget about it when the road to your destination changes or you end up on a detour. Coming up next, co-signing on a loan for a loved one, not a good plan. We will explain why. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Brian James. You know, we talk about debt. There are different kinds. And if we say there are different buckets of debt, well, there's a considered good debt. You take on that mortgage, often college loans, considered good debt, bad debt, credit cards. And then there is a bucket that we at Allworth would call the never do this debt bucket. And that comes when someone that you know and likely love very much comes to you and they say, hey, there's this student loan, there is this whatever loan, this mortgage, can you co-sign it with me? Yeah, love and money are, are, are very tough things to mix uh, yes. because these these are situations you, you never get to see them coming. Well, maybe you can, but uh, then but, but you'll be confronted and, and you'll you'll be asked a question that you know the, you're not going to be ready to write uh, ready to answer. This is a loan where there's really nothing in it for you other than. Uh, you know, somebody you care about potentially being in a better position. So uh, these can be very, very risky, though, just from a standpoint of, first of all, all of our judgment is clouded whenever family is involved, right? So we're not going to see the risks as, as clearly as we will. Sure. If it's, you know, if it's a friend of a friend coming around looking for a business loan or something, well, that's that's one thing. But if it's, you know, your, 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 your daughter, your son, your parents uh, asking you to co-sign for something, the big thing you got to remember is, A, you love this person, you're not going to see it clearly, and B, that person's credit score could very well become your credit score, or the debt itself is going to be your problem. I think a lot of people don't understand how this truly works. It is not, hey, if they default on this debt, half of the debt is yours, right? It is 100% you are on the hook if they are no longer anywhere to be found to pay this off. It, it, it comes down to you. Um, and I have just seen this, Brian, backfire so many times. You want to talk about, you know, relatives at the holidays and how difficult that can be? Well, yeah, try co-signing on a loan with someone and then they default on it. And all of a sudden, they're the last person you want to see over that turkey, right? And and I've seen it even within small, like, you know, children, right? And parents. And, and, it, and it just kind of devastating those relationships. But listen, we're not total Scrooges here. We're not absolute Grinches. We're just saying, hey, no to the cosign, but yes, you can co-help. There are ways that you can help people. And, and maybe you do have a little bit of extra money lying around, right, that, that you can 
part with that you're not going to consider alone, but maybe you help in that way. Or so many times people can be helped in other non-monetary ways, right? If you don't have the money for this, um, do you need to maybe look for a job where you can make more money? Can I help you network? Can I help you look at your resume? Right, Brian, there's all kinds of options here. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that exact loan for that exact uh, objective that that person, that loved one had in mind. It can simply be, hey, let's sit down. You're trying to solve a problem. Maybe the, maybe the solution you're looking at right now isn't the solution, but it doesn't mean we can't figure out something something else. Maybe that something else costs a little less, and that might be something you're, you're more comfortable uh, putting a little money into as opposed to signing yourself on alone for a much larger obligation that possibly neither of you can afford. Set up what you and your family think about this, right? Are we never going to do this? And we would say that's the best thing to do. Communicate that well, but then come at it from a place of, but how can we help you? How can we solve this together, right? Then you can both walk away from it feeling like you've helped each other. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station.